Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the land on which we are gathered here today, the traditional lands of the Kidigal people of the Euro Nation, and I pay my respects to elders, both past and present. My name is David Meredith, and I am Associate Director of um, Development for the Cancer Research Programme here at the University of Sydney. It is wonderful to see so many of you here with us today in the Australian Institute of Nanoscience, the latest step in the university's commitment to being at the forefront of scientific research. Shortly, you will hear from Professor Graham Mann and Associate Professor Georgina Long about some of the incredible work which we are doing through leadership by the Melanoma Institute of Australia in research into melanoma. For more of that to come later, but thank you, Graham and Georgina, for being with us here today. I'm sure that many of you here today have your own personal cancer story with you. Perhaps you are living with cancer, perhaps you're a cancer survivor, or perhaps, like me, you've had a loved one or know somebody close to you who has been affected by or died from cancer. Either way, it is a disease which affects many of us. The University of Sydney is dedicated and committed to researching what causes cancer, how we can better prevent it, how we can better protect, um, detect it, how we can better treat it, with the ultimate goal being to find an effective cure. Medical research at the university has been going on for hundreds of years, and the medical building in the Stuart, uh, Anderson Stewart Building was the first medical building here in Australia. Um, I'm sure many of you here gathered today are actually alumnus of the Sydney Medical School or other faculties related to health sciences. So welcome. It's great to have you here with us. But as our understanding of cancer has progressed, so the need to research it from different angles has also become apparent. And in 2006, the university established the Cancer Research Network, which brings together research experts from across all faculties, not just medicine, who are involved in cancer research. This includes health science, pharmacy, law, um, and many others. It also brings together our partner institutes and institutions, as well as our teaching hospitals, to produce a community dedicated to translating the research findings um, into improvements in cancer control through collaboration and the sharing of expertise. The university has members of our research and academic communities out in the community delivering the latest in medical treatments. And we also have our researchers with our partner institutions. Many people do not realize the universities um, are where the research into this, these diseases happen, into melanoma, into other cancers. It is here where our staff are at the coalface on a daily basis, passionate, committed, and inspired to shifting our knowledge base and improving medical outcomes. And many people also don't realize that to be able to carry out this inspirational work, we need the generous support of individuals and organizations who are inspired by our researchers and are inspired to back these researchers so they can continue their work. Philanthropy, which is literally the desire to promote the welfare of others, plays an incredibly important role at the university. Inspired, the campaign to support the University of Sydney has allowed us to pursue ideas that will shape our world. And this is certainly true for our work in cancer research. Some examples include a generous bequest, which established the A. Beckett Chair for the Prevention, Detection and Treatment of Bowel Cancer, which will shape the way we are able to deal with that disease. Philanthropy has also enabled us to identify a new antibody, which will improve the outcomes for bone marrow transplants and also to be able to develop a cancer vaccine as well. And philanthropy can play an important role in the Melanoma Genome Project, which Graham will talk about later, and which will change the way we diagnose and treat melanoma. Thank you again for joining us here today, and thank you again to, to Graham and Georgina for sharing your time, and I will now pass over to them. Thank you very much, David, for the introduction uh, and for uh, making this event happen. Thank you, Meredith, uh, and thank you, everybody, for coming. Um, we have a 15 minutes uh, each that we're going to uh, give a, a short presentation, and then after that we'll be uh, available to answer questions uh, at the front. And I guess what I've taken as my uh, uh, intent here is to, is to give you a, a necessarily quite superficial and, and quick tour of uh, where the moving edge is at the moment from a couple of uh, very specific perspectives, I guess around the issues of 
what melanoma as a problem is, and Georgina will also um, speak to this, who gets melanoma and why, what drives melanoma, and uh, basically the, the, the short story, the headline, if you like, is that we, we now have really quite a deep understanding of how sun exposure and genes uh, really contribute to uh, influencing our risk. And then within melanomas themselves, what's actually driving them? Uh, and it's a combination of things really that uh, explain why a melanoma uh, exists, uh, as with any cancer, and that is that there are faulty genes and mutations uh, and that as a result of that, one of the things that happens is that they've become shielded from immune attack. And both of these have proven to be uh, effective and extremely uh, exciting new developments in the treatment of cancer, but particularly melanoma, and, and really that's uh, going to be the focus of, uh, of what uh, Georgina will tell you about. So just some very brief context here. Uh, basically, we, cancer was a mystery when I did my PhD. Uh, one of the reasons I went into research was that this was a huge unsolved problem, uh, but I had a strong sense, I guess, in my, in, in my uh, research training that this was going to be the generation that would eventually get to the bottom of it. And I guess we have a, a uh, it's a standard model, it's, uh, it's an imperfect way of looking at things, but it explains an awful lot. The cancers are driven by damaged genes. Each cancer type, uh, coming from the lung or the melanoma uh, or from uh, the bowel, is somewhat unique in its characteristics. Each person's cancer within those types is somewhat unique because each person is unique. These things all, all come together as part of the way we have to understand the diversity of what happens to people when they develop a cancer. Melanoma. Uh, I don't think I'd have to uh, belabor this point. Uh, it's a, an extremely important cancer internationally. Uh, it's become uh, a top 10 cancer in most European populations. Uh, in Australia, it's the third most common cancer in men and the third most common cancer in women. Uh, and since the most common cancer in men is prostate and the most common cancer in women is breast cancer, it means melanoma is the fourth most common cancer uh, in, in people, in Australians. Uh, and it's a very important cancer in that, uh, for just for one uh, fact, uh, it's uh, the most uh, common cause of cancer death in, in young adults and has a very big impact. And these two uh, pictures which I'm showing you here, I guess, illustrate uh, you know, just some fundamental principles that what we have is something relatively small uh, which uh, has a, a risk of having seeded other cells into other parts of the body uh, and that our challenge is both uh, to prevent that happening, to detect it as early as possible uh, when it arises, and then if it happens to have got away, we need a whole armamentarium of things to, to head it off at the pass or to kill it where it lies. A lot of what I'm going to tell you uh, informs us uh, about this fundamental problem, which these pictures here try and illustrate. What I've got here is a, uh, a large-scale view of two different melanomas uh, in, sitting there in the skin, and a close-up of each of them. And you can see from the back of the room that these are very, very different beasts. Uh, this particular uh, population of cells is growing more or less where it started and expanding. That's the main uh, pattern that it's showing. Uh, and this uh, melanoma here is infiltrating along the skin and down uh, the structures of the skin, including the nerves. And, and again, from the end of the room, you can see that these melanoma cells, just at the simple level of the, of the pink and blue staining, uh, are, are really quite different in their cellular structure and their architecture. And here's a collection of uh, pieces of melanoma from a range of uh, people, and, you, and again, you can just see the diversity that's reflected there. Even that naive view tells you about the heterogeneity of this particular disease. Now, a lot of what I'm going to tell you uh, is research that's come out of uh, a very uh, powerful collaboration, uh, which I'm really proud to, uh, to be part of. Uh, and, and where Sydney University is its home, uh, it's basically the work that began uh, decades ago through the Sydney Melanoma Unit, uh, a very far-sighted uh, group of uh, surgeons and pathologists who really uh, have aspired to drive the field forward to understand this disease. And there's a whole proud history that we could spend a long, a long time talking about. And I'm very delighted there are people in the audience who've been on that journey uh, with us uh, as the Sydney Melanoma Unit has evolved into the Melanoma Institute Australia. Key things that we've done over the years uh, is maintain uh, research data uh, over uh, the, long, uh, the long haul on as many patients as we see. And this is now 40,000 uh, patients since 1950. 
uh, we have a large tumour bank, and that in the, the fundamental principle of the work we have always done is that we bring together people with diverse expertise to be able to tackle uh, the diverse aspects of the cancer problem through melanoma. And, and as a result, we've been very fortunate to attract uh, support of both uh, funding agencies and, and very generous donors uh, to support that work. And uh, I, I'll, I'll pay tribute to my colleagues at the end, but uh, this is uh, a, a wonderful thing and, uh, and for me personally, uh, it's really shaped uh, my, my career. One slide just to, uh, I guess, encapsulate uh, what's going on with melanoma in the population, uh, and we haven't got a lot of time to drill into this, but uh, the highlight here is simply that uh, you can see that over the years, you can see that melanoma incidence uh, in men and women uh, increased very substantially. And we now understand that that's largely due to the generation that grew up in the 1920s and 30s uh, having experienced much, much more sun exposure than previous generations. And that that's taken a whole lifetime for those in, among, in those people for that to play out. It's more or less stabilised and there's strong evidence that generations that have been born in the uh, 1960s and 1970s uh, appear to be getting less melanoma for a whole range of reasons, which we can come back to in discussion. Now, uh, before we get to all the, the clever molecular work, uh, let's remember that melanoma, is, this incidence rise, has been driven largely by sun exposure. And, uh, and a, a lovely little bit of data here that illustrates that from the UK uh, looks at melanoma incidence in 2010 versus 1903 with this uh, happy beach party um, photo for illustration. And that, and that uh, encapsulates uh, the major cultural change uh, that has changed sun exposure. Uh, it's around clothing, it's around uh, holidays, it's around recreation. But the, uh, the uh, upshot of that is that the dramatic increase in melanoma incidence in this particular population, the South East UK, uh, has really been driven by that change. And, and the estimate is that at least 80%, maybe 90% of melanomas uh, are due to that uh, avoidable uh, exposure increase. But that's, uh, that's at a population level, if you like, on, on average. Another really uh, critical thing we've learned is that uh, artificial UV uh, exposure is, uh, is also a very significant risk and uh, there's now complete consensus around this. Artificial tanning uh, is, uh, is a risk of causes a risk of melanoma, especially to young people. And in fact, it's been estimated that about 10% of all melanoma cases in Europe are due to the fashion and adoption of artificial tanning. So, everybody's basically at risk of, of cancer and of, and of uh, melanoma. But we're not all the same. We know that risk varies enormously over a very broad range. And we know that there are a range of factors which contribute into that, uh, that may be reflected in having previously had a melanoma, a strong family history of melanoma, uh, having the, the, the classic uh, skin cancer susceptible skin type, or having lots of moles. And I haven't got time to drill into this with you, but uh, let's just say, Many of those things clearly have a, a very strong genetic component. And a big task for us has been to uh, dissect that information out and find out which genes lie behind it. And I'm going to show you a little bit of uh, data around that. And the picture that's emerging across all cancers and, and for melanoma uh, as well is that perhaps 60% of the variation in risk in the population is driven by those genetic factors. In other words, if we were all clones, if we were all exactly the same, 60% uh, of those differences in risk would go away. So that's the paradox here. We've got a very strong external environmental influence, but we've also got a lot of individual variation. So uh, how can we deconstruct that and what do we do? Well, one of the things that we've been able to do in the last uh, 10 years is to survey all genes using markers that will tell us uh, where the signal is, which genes uh, are actually contributing to that risk. One slide here, one uh, paper that we were, we were uh, very heavily involved in, uh, and this shows you the location across the whole genome here. So these are uh, two million odd markers across the whole genome uh, from chromosome one through to chromosome X, and the difference in the frequency of these variations in the people with melanoma compared to the people without melanoma. This is a, the, the significance test for that difference. And what you can see is there's some really obvious um, uh, uh, peaks here and we've been drilling into this and, and expanding these numbers. We've actually 
uh, identified, you know, most of the, the our group and our collaboration has, has found most of the genes that uh, contribute to melanoma risk. And there, uh, there are some interesting different, different classes here. So um, two examples here are genes that we already know are strongly involved in regulating our pigment levels in our skin, the melanocortin receptor, the tyrosinase gene. Here's two others which have nothing whatever to do with that, but they have to do with DNA repair. They have to do with cell death after DNA damage or the signalling that follows DNA damage. And so we can see here that there's variation in the population. Some people have, uh, let's say, an active version of uh, this uh, DNA damage sensor and other people do not. I'm waving my hands here about the detail. Uh, it's obviously very different for each of these, but there's some very clear stories emerging from uh, this survey work. Here's a, a close-up of those. Two different signals on chromosome 1, uh, one of which, and if you look under here, uh, this is the blown-up map of one of those peaks, and it sits smack-bang over and fully only over this PARP1 gene. And PARP1 is a gene that's involved in the signalling and repair for DNA damage. There's an obvious mechanism there that, uh, that explains that, that risk. Uh, here's another one, though, on the same chromosome, another absolutely definite signal for risk of melanoma, but it's spanning a bunch of different genes, and it's not immediately obvious. However, um, we know from our studies that the people with this uh, signal tend to have uh, blue eyes, fair skin and brown hair, and buried within here, in fact, is a little gene that we know from work on zebrafish uh, is involved in pigment phenotypes. Enough about risk. Uh, the rest of what I'm going to say is to do uh, with the underlying architecture of melanoma, what, what's driving them and uh, how, how do we know uh, and where are we at in terms of uh, pulling that, that puzzle apart. And this has clearly got hu um, huge implications for the way we diagnose melanoma, with the information that we must have in order to plan uh, treatment and select treatment for people, uh, taking account of all those differences that we've seen before and just simply the way melanomas look and behave, uh, and critically, uh, the targets that are giving us the new treatment options in cancer generally and melanoma in particular. So how does it play out? Well, we've been looking at all the genes again, uh, and it's not just because we can. Uh, we've the, the Human Genome Project, uh, as you know, uh, showed a, a really the, the, the massive benefits that flow through from taking a comprehensive, unbiased look at something which you know must be involved in important things. So here, we're, the mission here is around, uh, really been launched about 10 years ago, uh, is that we really have to understand uh, at, in, in great detail um, what's actually going wrong at the level of the cell in melanoma essentially uh, starting with the genes, but in the end, we really have to understand all the different molecular types of these cancers. And I'm going to show you some data. It's going to be a very uh, Cook's tour, uh, whistle-stop through just a couple of images that highlight for you where we've come in, these two, in, these, uh, in, in this mission. This is my, uh, in a way, still my favourite slide, a real watershed moment in, in, in cancer. Uh, it's now four, it feels like a lot longer ago, uh, but it's actually only 2011. And this is, if you like, the, the first Landsat picture uh, from a distance of all cancer and just how many mutations they have, counting them up across the DNA. Each one of those dots is a person's tumour. Each group of these is an individual cancer type. And over here on a, on a log scale is the... Number, the proportion of those uh, DNA uh, uh, sites that has a mutation. And you can see there is a massive difference in nearly all tumour types between the least mutated and the most mutated. They sort of cluster around an average and there are some very different averages across these different tumour types. But you can see that this straight away tells you what we've always suspected clinically uh, and that is that not everybody's cancer is the same. Here are the melanomas sitting out there on the far right. Lots of reasons why they're out there, uh, but one of them is that out here on the right are the tumours that are driven heavily by an external uh, carcinogen, such as UV, such as cigarette smoke, such as um, uh, mutagens in the bowel. 
Over the other end are tumours which are mainly hematological cancers and also childhood cancers, but again a huge amount of variation. Down here on these little coloured uh, squares, what we're seeing here is that where each column uh, here, and I'll take melanoma and blow it up for you, each column here is the, uh, the spectrum of uh, DNA damage that's present in each one of those uh, person's tumours. And you can see that most of these melanomas are very similar to each other and they're dominated by this yellow. And that yellow happens to be one of the commonest consequences of UV damage. And so here uh, on this one slide is like decades of epidemiology made concrete. Uh, that, those are the lung cancers, two different types of lung cancers, but their mutation footprints are basically cigarette smoke and other pollutants. And, and I could go on. Uh, a hugely uh, synthesising moment uh, which... Uh, I mean, it's always great to see things that you don't expect, but uh, it's also very validating to see that the direction of cancer research and cancer epidemiology is now landing very, very firmly uh, in the new molecular epidemiology. So let's look at our different melanomas and how can we start to deconstruct them. So uh, the genome sequencing that I'm going to show you a couple of examples of come from two different projects. One is the... Uh, largely post-GFC uh, Obama uh, stimulus money, which was, which was uh, very happily uh, uh, used by NIH and NCI and NHGRI particularly uh, to help catalogue uh, the mutations uh, and other molecular abnormalities in cancer. And the second project, the Australian Melanoma Genome Project, is our own homegrown addition to that, uh, and they focus on two different, quite different methods of genome sequencing. But in this, we're also getting out epigenetics. We're getting out gene and protein expression, and we have a real task of putting it together. And I just want to give you a flavour of how some of that's playing out. So what we have here, uh, and I'll just pick out a couple of features here, uh, a high-level view of the mutations and drivers in that TCGA project. We have 311 cutaneous melanomas, so all one basic uh, type of melanoma. Here are their mutation levels, a bit like what we saw before, the dots on the graph, some with very high levels of mutation, some with very low levels of mutation. Here's that uh, molecular footprint uh, the, of the, of the uh, sun exposure, different colour coding here, where the, it's, this one, it's red this time instead of yellow. And, and I could draw out straight away that there's, again, a dominance here of a UV uh, effect, uh, but some that are absolutely quite different. And this is lining them up uh, based on the commonest mutations that they have. Georgina will be speaking to this uh, uh, very shortly, but you can see here that there are a bunch of tumours here that have a, a common driver mutation in a gene called BRAF. There's another bunch that are driven by NRAS and other RAS genes, a bunch that are driven by NF1 and a bunch that are not. And the short story is that what links those together is that those three genes all sit within a pathway that is a, one of the commonest drivers uh, for melanoma, the MAP kinase pathway. But I'm not going to dwell on that. I just want to point out for you, uh, again, the diversity uh, uh, story. So here's a bunch of BRAF melanomas, but here's the other things that they have just sorted together. And you can see that that person's melanoma has a different set of mutations from that person's melanoma. And some of the genes here, that we, other genes that are mutated, are also are mutated across these different types. So what we're seeing is the complexity here of the mutations that have been selected to be present in these tumours. There's ways of looking at the wiring of these. Uh, the, looking into some detail is starting to uh, reveal to us some neglected aspects of these tumours, things we already knew which we were very focused on, such as the MAP kinase pathway, we are now seeing, well, this minority to here is a 7% of people who have key mutations in this aurora kinase pathway. Well, there are drugs already out there that can manipulate those mutations. Georgina will be speaking to you about the, uh, the therapeutic uh, consequences of this knowledge in a moment. Again, skating across the other things that we can see from this, this is the genes that are being used by these tumours and clustering the, the tumours together by their common patterns. And you can see that there are clearly about three or four different major subtypes there. One of these, it turns out, is dominated by a strong immune activation signature. That, that's overuse of those genes. 
These are all uh, genes which are strongly indica indicative of uh, immune activation. Functional differences are implied by this group here, uh, sorry, this group of tumours here, which is dominated by overexpression of neuronal uh, antigens, in contrast to this group, which is dominated by epithelial, uh, epithelial molecules. And this is clinically significant, so that the immune signal there and the keratin, so the immune group, the keratin group, and this other group here, MITF, have quite different uh, prognoses. The immune signal is actually a good prognostic feature. Not that well shown by the TCGA study, but we and other, others have shown this very carefully and very clearly uh, in other work. Moving along, epigenetics. This is one view, just one, of the way of thinking about, method, about uh, gene programming across the genome. And there are some clear, big cluster differences here. Uh, tumours here that are dominated by a methylation uh, footprint, which shuts down a lot of genes and their expression. Quite different from this group here. And something which I think is really um, both exciting and challenging is that when you line up those different uh, subsets defined by their mutations, their drivers, uh, their gene and protein expression or their epigenetic uh, you know, high-level um, label, which T-shirt they're wearing, um, these do not, uh, they're not commensurate with each other. These are three quite independent ways of looking at these melanomas, different layers, different perspectives of organisation. And it really validates uh, the, the fact that we uh, don't, can't just sit tight uh, looking at the mutations. We really have to understand uh, the mechanics of this and the, if you like, the higher levels of organisation of a disturbed cancer cell. The last couple of things I just want to show you are how taking a, a, a more sophisticated look at the uh, genome of these melanomas has taught us some very new things. Uh, and what we're talking here about is the Australian Melanoma Genome Project, which we're about to submit the first major paper on, uh, which is based on whole genome sequencing. And it's shown us uh, a new view of the structural damage that the melanoma genes have and with new footprints of mutations. Whole genome versus exome sequencing is the difference between looking at these individual uh, little uh, expressed gene segments, with that's a bit of gene map here, uh, exome sequencing looks just at these uh, little blocks. Whole genome sequencing gets about 100 times more information by looking at everything. And, and the, for a lot, we'll come back to it, I'm sure, in discussion, but uh, this has proven to be uh, pretty much the way we have to go now. And here's one example why. These are two people's melanomas, uh, and this shows you all of the uh, genome and the breaks and interconnections and underlying here the amplifications and deletions that are spread across that genome. That person's melanoma has almost none of those structural changes. This person's melanoma is completely riddled with them. And there are others in the middle. And some of these uh, are highly targeted and in fact may have important functional consequences and, and give opportunities for treatment. We've shown uh, with very high resolution now that mutation load uh, diversity and that melanomas that aren't uh, sun-driven have, have a completely different uh, spectrum of, uh, of mutation footprint, uh, including some novel uh, uh, UV signatures seen in our cutaneous melanomas and other mutation signatures that have nothing to do with UV uh, at all. Finally, we've been able to show something which is really brand new and that is about the way cancer cells immortalise and, uh, and uh, this, I'll draw your attention to this graph here, which shows you the difference in length of the ends of chromosomes. Critical way in which cells decide whether they're uh, licensed to continue to, to multiply. And, and you can see that our melanoma cases range from tumours where there's a very great elongation of these telomeres to a very great shortening. And again, this the dimension of variation among melanomas has not been observed before. Uh, and, uh, and is a really exciting uh, area of both new mechanisms and new diagnostics and potentially new treatments. So that diversity has lots of explanations and we're starting to get to grips with them and some of the way we're getting to grips with it has implications. The way this has happened is through uh, a massive amount of work by a lot of people and, and I pay, pay tribute to everybody I work with. This is just a, a selection, uh, but the message is that you must take away is 
I've shown it to you, but I didn't do any of this. It was done by these people and in a lot of different places. Uh, and it's a, a pleasure to have been involved with it and to have been able to tell you about it. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank the University of Sydney for inviting me to speak at this um, seminar today and to talk about something that's very close to my heart, and that is the treatment of melanoma with drug therapies. My name's Georgina Long. I am a medical oncologist. I treat melanoma with drug therapies, as opposed to surgeons who treat it with the knife and radiation doctors, for example, who treat it with ray beams. I also um, am co-lead with Graham and others the translational research efforts at Melanoma Institute Australia. So uh, I won't harp on about this because Graham's already shown you this slide with the cutaneous melanoma. So what I'm talking about today is skin melanoma, cutaneous melanoma. We do have two other types of melanoma, which is uveal melanoma at the back of the eye and mucosal melanoma, melanoma that occurs initially from within your body. And I won't be talking about those two very rare melanomas today. I just want to point out two things, or several things. Um, shown in green is the incidence for men in solid, and in the dotted line is the mortality for men, and in yellow is for women in Australia. So first of all, in 2011, and that's our, our latest uh, solid statistics, we had 12,000 cases of melanoma. This is almost 60 men per 100,000. It is the highest in the world by far, and for women, nearly 40 per 100,000. But you can see a plateau in that incidence curve, as um, Graham has pointed out. We have about 1,500 deaths per annum. That's a death every six hours. And being a medical oncologist, I'm really at the cold face of that. That is what we see in our practice. Uh, we are working very hard to try and cure this disease, and we've had some great successes, which I'll outline today. But we are still not completely winning, and we have a lot more work to do. Our great hope is that the mortality rate will drop in two ways. Number one, by dropping the incidence of melanoma, which we hope we're doing, and number two, by treating it better. And that's what I'm going to be outlining today. So Melanoma Institute Australia is a standalone research institute affiliated with the University of Sydney. Um, and uh, this is where we conduct most of our clinical work. We have three main goals. Number one, to provide the best clinical treatment and service for people who have melanoma. Number two, to conduct world-first cutting-edge research into the cause of melanoma and the treatment of melanoma and to try and prevent melanoma. And number three, to educate the community and health professionals regarding melanoma. We have a very large network, which Graham has explained. We have one of the largest biospecimen banks in the world, thanks to our patients. Um, for example, at the moment, we have nearly 10,000 bloods banked from people who have melanoma, nearly 5,000 metastases, that's where melanoma is spread, uh, and nearly 800 primaries. That's by far the biggest in the world and have contributed to most of the world's efforts in staging and looking at the genome of melanoma. We have a very large research database of over 40,000 patients, all people with melanoma. We then have a very well-developed clinical trials unit uh, looking at new drugs and new technologies, and then our laboratories, which are spread across several campuses where we're doing research into uh, melanoma. And the centre of all this are our patients. Without our patients, they generate the questions that we want to answer, they generate the tissue that we can work on, they provide us with the blood so that we can try and solve this problem. And it doesn't just impact melanoma, it impacts so many other cancers, and I'll show you that in a moment too. So just a quick outline in melanoma stages. Melanoma stage one and two, this is again cutaneous melanoma, is where you have the single primary lesion. Sometimes it's pigmented like a, like a mole, but sometimes it's not. For example, Arnold Schwarzenegger famously has had a primary melanoma just near his ear there, and that was resected. The vast majority of patients with stage one and two melanoma are cured with surgery. Then we have stage three melanoma. That is where you might have a primary, but it spreads to a local close by lymph node. So for example, I've got a picture here of a man with a lymph node in the neck. Um, that's stage three melanoma. People with stage three melanoma are at very, very high risk of becoming stage four melanoma, where the melanoma spreads around the body 
and that's considered a terminal condition, although we are working to change that, and in some instances we have. So today I'll be talking about stage four melanoma, where melanoma has spread, and some of the uh, great uh, advancements we've made with treatments and where we're heading. So there are two major classes of drugs we use in melanoma. We no longer or very rarely use chemotherapy. We use either targeted therapy or immunotherapy. So this is a picture of a patient I've treated with targeted therapy. This is a BRAF inhibitor and a MEK inhibitor, dabrafnib and trametinib. They're the drug names. So you can see this is a, a person standing up. This is a CT scan. You can see their liver, their black lungs, normal, their bones, which are white. And there's these grape-like structures here. That is... Is that coming up? Yep. That's melanoma in the patient's chest. Very extensive melanoma. They were having trouble uh, difficulty breathing. And if you look at the next slide slightly behind, you can see the heart, and there's all this dark grey around the heart. That's fluid pressing the heart, and the heart is becoming a different shape. Uh, this person was very unwell when I met them. We started the treatments, and within eight weeks, all of that's disappeared. You can now see the heart underneath, and all the fluid around the heart's completely disappeared, and this person's enjoying a wonderful quality of life. In fact, I just saw them this week, um, at week eight, and um, they want to go back to work, and they want to do things, and they want to live again, which is just wonderful. So the other big treatment is immunotherapy. So this is a patient who's treated with a type of immunotherapy called anti-PD-1. And you can see on the neck they have a large number of deposits of melanoma. These are lymph nodes and under the skin, subcutaneous deposits of melanoma. And here on the liver you can see the dark grey. These are spots of melanoma in the liver. This is a very poor prognostic type of melanoma. But at month 11, this is just one of the later photos, but he had a very quick response. All disappeared over his neck and in the liver as well. And he's doing very well, enjoying a very high quality of life. So... These two big areas, immunotherapy and targeted therapy, and we rarely use chemotherapy, have actually developed quite separately. We haven't yet crossed them. In fact, we're just doing clinical trials where we're combining them and crossing them. So we've never actually compared them head to head. So it becomes a bit of a difficulty for us to decide what's best for our patients. But I just want to highlight how drugs are developed because this is important to understand how we do this research. So when you develop a drug and you work out that in the Petri dish or in animal studies it might be a drug that be, will be worthwhile to explore, we put it into what we call a phase one study, which is looking at the safety. Is it toxic? What are the side effects? In those sort of studies, there are anywhere between 20 to 100 patients or subjects. Subjects because in non-cancer areas of health, you can use healthy volunteers. But in cancer, we have cancer patients who participate in these trials. Phase two, we look at the efficacy. How well does it actually shrink the tumour? And that usually is around 100 to 300 subjects in those sort of trials. Phase three, these are the most important studies for evidence for funding bodies to pay for drugs in various countries. Phase three, take this new drug, if it's got through phase one and two and it looks good, and they compare it to the current standard. And unless you show in a randomised trial that it's better than the current standard, then no government is going to pay for these drugs for their population, and that's fair enough. It's a level of evidence that we require. And phase three trials can take anywhere between 300 to 3,000 patients, depending on the power um, and what we're trying to uh, determine. Phase four is less interesting to someone like me who's trying to cure cancer, but that's once you've got a drug out in the community, what's the surveillance? Are we picking up any minor toxicities that you would only see in thousands of patients? From the laboratory to phase four takes about 12 to 18 years. And I, I stress that because I'm going to show you results that we've done in, in less than four years and costs about $1 billion, which is why these must be done as collaborations internationally and to have really... Uh, key opinion leaders and thought leaders pushing the ideas about what are the best drugs to be doing in clinical trials. It is not something that a cooperative group on its own can do. Not if you're really trying to cure cancer. It requires a lot of resources. So now I'm just going to show you what we've achieved in melanoma. This is the one-year overall survival of patients with stage 4 or metastatic melanoma. So for decades, it sat at about 30 to 35%. So if we took 100 people with stage 4 melanoma, only about 30 would be alive at the end of a year. 
In 2010 and 2011, we saw the first leap after decades of trials in, in an immune therapy called ipilimumab, where the one-year overall survival hit nearly 50%. Then in 2012 and 2013, we saw the results of another phase three trial, and we, by the way, have been involved in all of these trials at Melanoma Institute Australia, and many of them we have led. Um, in 2012-13, we saw the BRAF inhibitors just on their own. We hit a one-year overall survival of nearly 70%. And then in 2014, a second-generation immune treatment called nivolumab, or an anti-PD-1, and that hit 73%. Then in 2015, we've now seen a second anti-PD-1 uh, hit above 70%. And then we're combining drugs to try and push up that one-year overall survival. Similar results for two-year overall survival. But you'll see we've still got work to do. About uh, more than half of our patients are surviving beyond two years. So I'm just going to now focus quickly on targeted therapy. This is a cell. We've got the cell membrane in green. And I'm just showing you three different pathways in a cell you normally have thousands of pathways, but these are three different pathways that go into the nucleus and tell the cell to divide in a very organised fashion. If we look at melanoma, and Graham has highlighted this, melanoma alone, if you take a melanoma cell, we can find aberrations in almost every protein in those pathways. So there's a lot potential to target with drugs. The one such that we've had great success with is the BRAF mutation, which occurs in about 40% of cutaneous melanoma. The other one that we're working on is the NRAS, which is around 25%, a bit higher in Australians. Um, it's, we're working on trials targeting that mutation. And then we do have some KIT inhibitors, but that's not a very common mutation. So I'm just going to focus on the BRAF inhibitors because that's where we've had the really big leap forward in survival. So here again, now we've got the melanoma cell. There's the membrane. This is the inside of the cell. That's the nucleus. If you have a BRAF mutation in your melanoma cancer cell, you do not need any of these control proteins that usually keep the cell controlled because BRAF's mutated and all on its own, it's telling the cell, divide, divide, proliferate, migrate, which is what cancer is, immortal and spreading. So the BRAF inhibitors target that protein in the melanoma cancer cell and cause the cell to die. When we first started working with BRAF inhibitors, we saw these spectacular responses. This is a PET scan of a patient with widespread melanoma throughout his bones, lungs, liver, lymph nodes, skin. And within 15 days, we switched the metabolism off. That's the black, that's the melanoma, and you can see that it's switched off within two weeks. Shown here are what we call waterfall plots. So each individual line is an individual patient. This is from the phase three study where patients were randomised to a BRAF inhibitor in green or old-fashioned chemo in black. And you can see from zero, if the line goes below zero, it means the tumour shrank for that patient. So for the BRAF inhibitors, nearly 90% of patients had tumour shrinkage. And in fact, about 60% had deep shrinkage, had a, a nice deep shrinkage. Whereas with chemotherapy, less than 10% had any form of deep shrinkage. We then worked out that actually inhibiting twice in that pathway in the melanoma cancer cell may be better than just inhibiting with a BRAF inhibitor. And sure enough, we did trials where we compared a BRAF inhibitor plus a MEK inhibitor, two nodes in that pathway, versus a BRAF inhibitor alone, and we saw a significant difference. And you can see the two-year survival bumped up from about 42% to 51%. I'm just going to overlay the chemotherapy curve there. So you can see what a massive difference we've made with just these targeted therapies. But there's more yet to come. We also know that these targeted therapies work in the brain which is very unusual for solid tumours like melanoma, which spread to the brain to have drugs that actually shrink melanoma metastases. So just briefly on immunotherapies and the idea behind immunotherapies. We have many different immune cells in our bodies, but one very important immune cell is the T cell. Anything on green on this T cell, these are receptors on the T cell, make the T cell go. Anything bound on the red will make the T cells stop. And the T cells constant tug of war, trying to decide whether to kill things that come and invade the body or whether to accept things and tolerate them. So if you have a foreign invader, a virus, a bacteria, a cancer, which in fact is, is foreign, although it arises from our bodies, what we want the T cell to do is to see it as an enemy, to see it as foreign, and to stimulate all the green guys here on the T cell 
and to not turn on the red guys so that the enemy is destroyed by the T cell. And what we want it to do for our own cells, like our bones and our liver and our lung, is we want the T cell, our own T cells, to recognise that as family and to not kill. What we've done is we've leveraged this information about T cells and we've said, okay, what if we give drugs that don't target melanoma but target the T cell and if we give inhibitors of these inhibitors, we may make the T cell go and kill melanoma. And that's exactly what we've done. And those are the names of the drugs. So the anti-PD-1 drugs I mentioned, nivolumab and pembrolizumab, and the anti-CTLA-4, that's ipilimumab. So they don't work on the melanoma, they work on your T cells to kill the melanoma. Just a few quick slides to show you the effect we've seen in clinical trials. So here's another waterfall plot. This is an anti-PD-1 drug. Again, each individual column is an individual patient. You can see about 70% will have some tumour shrinkage. Around 40% will have deep tumour shrinkage. And if you're in that 40%, it tends to be very durable. This is what we call a swimmer's plot. So again, each individual row is a patient. And all the ones with the black arrows are still going on those drugs when we did this data cut. And I can tell you the more mature data is looking very good, that most patients who have good shrinkage tend to do very well, up to the data we have, which is only about two to two, three years old. We saw that against chemotherapy, our good old-fashioned chemotherapy in a phase three trial, that the anti-PD-1s were significantly better than chemotherapy. But the question remains, how do they compare to targeted therapies? So just to end on this last point, and this is what we're doing at Melanoma Institute of Australia, is we want to try and convert these guys here who are not responding to immune therapies into responders, and we're going to try and leverage the targeted therapies to do that. We've already tried one thing, and that is we've combined... Sorry, that didn't come out very well. This has not come out, but basically what we've done is we've combined the two immune treatments together, IPI and NEVO. And if I had the slide there and you saw the waterfall, you'd see that we're improving outcomes even further for patients by combining immune therapies, although it can be toxic. But the last thing is what we do with our biopsies. So we biopsy patients before we start a novel treatment, early during treatment on a novel treatment, and then if they progress at progression, to try and understand who are the people who are responding and why, and how can we recapitulate that in people who aren't responding. And what we found, so these are the biopsies we take. For instance, this was one of our very first findings a few years back, is when you use a BRAF inhibitor, when you look at the baseline melanoma tissue, so these are all melanoma cells under the microscope, there aren't any T cells around, but when you give a BRAF inhibitor, it draws those T cells into the tumour and then they disappear again if a patient progresses. So what we're doing is trying to leverage that, use the targeted therapies, bring in the T cells, then come in with your immune therapies to see if we can get a higher cure rate in metastatic melanoma. And so we're conducting a trial right now of combining all these agents together. I just wanted to let you know there is a clinical trials app for physicians because we want to try and reach out as far as we can to get patients onto clinical trials to try and push um, our research forward and push the field forward so that we can get to that point we want to get to, which is where we see a waterfall like this, where everyone's having tumour shrinkage, and a survival curve like this, where everybody's surviving as they would in terms of natural history. I just want to acknowledge the patients and their families and my colleagues who work in this field and uh, all the staff and people who work with me at Melanoma Institute Australia and the campuses uh, connected to us. That's a photo of our multidisciplinary team. Every Friday we meet and discuss our patients. Uh, it's always crowded. Um, there's usually 50 to 60 of us. It's a two-hour meeting. This is our trials team and this is our translational research team. Thank you. Thank you, Georgina and Graham. Um, my name is Jimmy Buck, and I'm the Director of Alumni Relations, and I have the privilege of moderating our Q&A session. Um, now, I think I might ask Graham and Georgina to take the seats up here at the front, and my colleague Ikra to join me to um, hand out the mic. We'll have two roving mics, 
so that um, if you'd like to ask a question, please put your hand up and we'll bring the microphone to you. We've already got our first person right up here in the front, um, so Iker will just bring that microphone to you. Um, if we run out of questions, I know I was scribbling down notes, so I've got tons of them to ask. Um, but if you could please also um, say your name and if you're from um, a particular organization, which organization you're from. No, I'm just Mark by myself. Um, thank you. Um, very exciting. Could you please explain to me why the T cell stuff can't be generalised to all cancer? Uh, it can, and it is. Uh, melanoma, because we were an orphan cancer for so many decades, we were forced to be leaders in looking at other ways to treat cancer, and it is being generalised to other cancers. So there are currently clinical trials in numerous, numerous cancers looking at these immune drugs and how uh, they can use the T cells to kill those cancers. Another question over here. Yeah, hi, uh, George Margellis, and I'm the medical director for Intel. So I'm a, a medical doctor who works for a large IT company. One of the areas we find very challenging is the lack of bioinformatics or informatics, clinical informatics workforce in Australia. So people who understand how to take a genome and understand and work with it, especially at a clinical level. A, what's your opinion on that? And B, do you think that's something we need to focus on? You commented on you know, Professor, uh, President Obama's uh, incentives in the United States whether that's something we need to do more work on here to get a informatics as part of our core clinical skill sets. Sure. Uh, look, this, this is something we've seen before where uh, any new area, you create the need for new capacity. And I guess uh, one of our major uh, roles in our own group has been to, if you like, grow our own uh, and work with the people who are already uh, in the field. But it's a multi-layered uh, multi set of things need to happen. And, and I'll give you some examples. The state government, uh, for instance, uh, you know, through New South Wales Health has embraced this and is uh, partnering with uh, informatics training organisations to uh, you know, create uh, multi-layered workshops where people who need to know a little can get orientated, people who need to know a lot can get involved, can have a period of training. There's lots and lots of ways of making it happen, but yeah, we're playing catch-up. There's no question about that. Any other questions? Max Bennett from this university. Uh, RAF and MEK are very fundamental messengers in all cells. So how do you distinguish from the ones you want and the ones you don't want to hit? Is RAF, what did you say, RAF proteins? Yeah, and RAF. RAF and MEK are fundamental yep. messengers in all cells. They're used everywhere. So, so yeah. the, the drugs target the BRAF mutant protein, which are only present in melanoma cells. So um, it does have a little bit of binding to BRAF wild type, which is BRAF negative, very little, and that is manifest with some of the side effects we see with single-agent BRAF inhibitors. But they're quite selective for the mutant protein, which makes them so uh, wonderfully powerful. As for the MEK inhibitor, though, that is um, binding to the normal protein. Yeah. And so we do have a much lower therapeutic window. We would love to be using a much higher dose of MEK inhibitor, but we are limited by the toxicities. The most interesting thing, and I didn't uh, explain this, is when we combine the BRAF and the MEK inhibitor together, we see a decrease in the toxicities. I won't go through the pathways, but there's cellular biology pathways that I can explain later if, if you want to take me too long. But never before in the history of cancer have we been able to rationally design one drug and then another and get, based on the toxicity, to rid ourselves of the toxicities and increase the efficacy. There's a whole, I think there's something that lies behind that too, that uh, it's easy to think of cancer cells as incredibly smart and perfectly designed, but in fact they're, they're incredibly badly pranged, their systems are shot, and interfering with one really important driver mechanism often creates a whole cascade of uh, collapse and uh, apoptosis, cell death, that the normal cells uh, shrug off. They, in other words, the drug peak goes by, uh, the signalling might be temporarily uh, interfered with, but they, they bounce back, whereas the, uh, the cancer cells, uh, if, if you're lucky enough to have a good response, have clearly hit a major wall. And I think that's what we're trying, one of the main things we're trying to do is to figure out, well, what are the ways of amplifying that and really boxing off all the ways that the, the cancer cells might survive that? Uh, and that's part of the motivation for, for finding not just the, the one thing that works or the two things that work, but the combinations of things that we're going to have to do to produce cures. 
Can you tell me how it is that the uh, T cell population suddenly increases uh, when you're using a BRAF inhibitor if you put PD1 into the equation? I can understand why the T cells become more effective, but how come their numbers go up? So we've been looking into why the numbers of T cells go up, and there are two theories. Back to the point that you just made. So BRAF inhibitors bind the mutant protein, but as I said before, they bind a little bit of BRAF wild type. When BRAF inhibitors bind BRAF wild type, they actually paradoxically activate that pathway. So we don't care in melanoma where it's mutant. We inhibit the mutant protein, the cell dies. But in other cells, when a, the BRAF inhibitor binds the wild-type BRAF protein, it paradoxically activates the MAP kinase pathway, and we think it may be doing the same in T cells. That's the first theory hypothesis. And we've seen that we can stimulate T cells proliferation by applying a BRAF inhibitor. The second thing, or the other hypothesis, is that BRAF inhibitors for BRAF mutant melanoma cancer cells are so effective at causing cell death, you just have a huge array of antigen presentation and the T cells naturally are drawn into the tumour bed. Because of the antigen presentation? We'd, we'd think cell so. Yeah, because it's we think so. that other treatments like radiotherapy given at the same time, which could produce cell death, uh, have an amplifying effect on the... Yeah, uh, like radio, local radiation or yeah. chemo. And, and just to, on your second part of your question with the PD-1, why that would help. So you bring in the T cells, but T cells get exhausted. And PD-1 on a T cell, expressed on a T cell, is a marker of exhaustion. So um, it's showing that they're being presented with lots of antigen, trying to kill, but they get very exhausted. So by putting in a PD-1 inhibitor, you're reprogramming the T cells to be uh, cytotoxic and to cause cell death. Oh, my name's Anna Binney. Um, I'm not a medico, so my question's going to be very basic. Um, if, say, tomorrow morning, somebody comes into your offices with um, stage 3 melanoma, um, what kind of treatment are they going to get as standardised treatment? So um, all the work I just showed you and the trial results of drugs was all in stage 4. So we are now conducting, and I didn't have time in 15 minutes to go through some of the things we're doing, we're conducting similar trials in stage 3. So stage 3 melanoma, half of the patients are fine with surgery. Melanoma is not going to be a problem for them. Half of them, unfortunately, it will return. And it's that group we're trying to help. So we have clinical trials. We've actually closed a few just recently, which is great. It means we've recruited to them. We've got the patient numbers. Now we're just waiting for the results. And if they're positive... If the results of the trials are positive, then the drugs usually become available after that point. We do have a couple of clinical trials open, looking at targeted therapies in certain situations in stage 3, and we have some trials of anti-PD-1 drugs in stage 3 as well. But you can, we don't just give a drug willy-nilly without evidence that it works in that group. Drugs have some toxicities, which I didn't go through. They may not work at all in that setting, so we have to do the trials to establish they work and then hopefully get it funded if we show that they do show a survival benefit. So I discuss trials with my patients. A lot. Another question a lot. Right? Thank you. I'm a, a melanoma sufferer, um, primary 16 years ago, and I've had metastases in various parts of my body, larynx, a small intestine and my brain, but I have these long periods where nothing happens, where everything's quiet and it's dormant. What's going on there? Have you donated your tissue to us? <laughs> I, I'm sure I have. I know I'm BRAF positive, but yeah. So, so you are a rare group, but you exist, and we talk yes, about, <laughs> and we talk about people like you all the time, because you're one of the extreme cases. We don't really know what's going on. We suspect your immune system has a huge role to play, or maybe there's something within the tumor biology. But we are looking at groups of people in that way. So, who are these people with stage four who have these resections? categorised by these long periods of latency and then it comes up in one place again versus the people I see sometimes that walk in the door and it's 
everywhere and you know they only have weeks to go. So we're looking at that on a genome level within our genome project and people like you and the others, it's important we get tissue so we can try and understand the biology to, to find out why and why can't we make more people like you? Uh, or, or before you, who before didn't have you. melanoma, you know. <laughs> but, I mean, an example would be the, you know, those flower diagrams where I showed you the, the, the tumour which has got a lot of things wrong versus the one on the far right with very, very little wrong. And I'd be banking that, uh, you know, something like that. You've got relatively few problems in the melanoma cells that you've had. Or maybe great T, uh, well, antigens cells, yeah. that your T cells, so proteins in your melanoma that your T cells recognise and kill. Uh, my name's Peter Hickey. You mentioned one of the slides that Georgina showed said something about only having 800 samples of primaries when you've got 40,000 patients. That's surprising. Yeah, so well, why can't you get more samples? And, and you mentioned to the last questioner that have they donated theirs. I would have thought that, as I've had a few primary melanomas cut out, I would have thought that they go to you automatically. So we have the paraffin, uh, should have been clear, that's fresh frozen. So we have the paraffin on all our patients who are treated. That's not a problem. So we have samples of the melanoma. We use them all the time, especially in my field, because I need to know what the BRAF is, the NRAS is, etc., etc. But to freeze a primary melanoma is incredibly difficult because you imagine it. You walk in, a patient with a primary melanoma, and the doctor says to you, I'm going to take this off, I'm going to freeze it, but we need pathological diagnosis in paraffin, that's not frozen. We need to know how thick it is, we need to know if it's ulcerated, we need to know how many mitoses it has, so that we can tell you whether to have a central node biopsy, whether you have your nodes out. So to get a frozen primary is very difficult because it can affect your treatment and management. And number one rule is that you treat the patient and manage them to the best of your ability. And sometimes putting their primary in the bank, in the freezer, can, can uh, stop get them getting the best management. So we're very careful about doing that. The number one rule is you treat the patient and give them the best treatment and assess their tumour to the best of your ability. And if you have a particularly thick melanoma or there are circumstances which allows you to bank it, then you bank it. But they are hard and we'd love to get more... The other reason we don't have so many is often those primaries are treated in the community not by us, so we can't bank them. We're working really hard on being able to translate what we find out on the frozen tumours back, back to the paraffin. And uh, so the vision we would have is that there will be completely different ways of assessing the molecular potential of the, even the thinnest uh, primary melanomas. The, the very first slide I showed you with that little, you know, it's one and a half centimetres across, less than a millimetre thick. There's not a lot of cells there and the priority is uh, getting the accurate diagnosis. Is that another question at the back? Um, my name's Jeff Howes. Um, I'm an economist, um, but a graduate of this university. Um, Georgina, one of your slides referred to the billion dollars that it costs for research. My question is not about the billion dollars, but what is cancer costing Australia? I've got the number. So the, the, the melanoma is diagnosed... Georgina, I've got the number. No, is that okay? Uh, the, the, the melanoma is diagnosed this year. Uh, would, uh, counting up all the direct costs and the, uh, and, and the costs to the person in the community uh, is roughly $10 billion. The melanoma is diagnosed this year. Billion. Billion. $10 billion. That's, that's counting everything lifelong, you know, the whole... The Stopping whole work, stuff. you know, not contributing to the community because you're sick, you die, it's, it's etc., all those things. It's easy to lose sight of, um, and all health problems are like that. Uh, they, they have ex extremely large footprints uh, out there. And, uh, yeah, the, the estimate for melanoma in 2005, actually, and it may be more now, uh, was $10 billion nationally. Just the melanomas? For the, just the melanomas diagnosed this year. So just those people and their melanomas amortised out over the whole of uh, their life and the lost opportunities and so on, uh, it's about $10 billion. It's a, you know, clearly a, uh, it's a, t a, a tasteless calculation and a difficult calculation, but that's of that order. Another question here at the front. Uh, look, I'm Kate Georges. I'm a semi-retired dermatologist, so melanoma has been a large part of my professional life. The work that you've done and showed us this afternoon is absolutely fantastic. Um, stage 4 melanoma, and to see these lesions just disappear is just unbelievable. 
However, what I wanted to ask you, do natural killer cells have any role to play in this? Yes, and it's something we're working on. And um, although I've just shown you immune therapies focusing on the T cell, we are looking at other immune therapies that focus on other aspects of the immune system, including natural killer cells. Okay, thank you. We've got time for one more question back at the front. Looking at the average age of this audience here, we would have been exposed continually over summer down the beach for many weeks, two months probably at a time, till we went black. What is the basis of, or what is the mechanism by which there is such a long latent period between that event, which was illustrated in part on your graph, and the appearance of a melanoma? Yeah, that's a great, it's a really great question. Um, can I give a, uh, it'll be an armchair version of this because we don't have direct observation. I think what you're talking about is, is that we, we know that there's at least five major cellular functions have to be knocked out to make any cancer cell and melanoma is no different. And each one of those, uh, each one of those functions has many hundreds of uh, components and a lot of redundancy and so it takes an awful lot to actually completely knock out each one of those five key functions and they're about you know, lifespan, they're about avoiding cell death, they're about proliferation, they're about staying where you are uh, or not. And, uh, and so it just uh, if you look at all of the, um, I guess maybe if I can back off and say, for most people they're actually not ever going to have a clinical cancer. Something like 50% of us will have a clinical cancer in the course of our life. I'm excluding uh, you know, the uh, non-melanoma skin cancers. So if you think about it, that's one cancer out of all of your cells, whatever it is, your 10 trillion cells, or however many <laughs> 50 trillion cells that we are, over the course of a whole life, one of them got through. Tells you that there's an awful lot of uh, processes out there that are, that are trying to keep us alive and well and our tissues functioning, and all those mechanisms have ways of, of, of heading a cancer off at the pass. Um, there are lots of things like our DNA repair, immune editing. Once you get a population of cells that's on the way, maybe it's got all the five characteristics. Uh, the immune system recognises it because it's producing proteins that shouldn't exist, new proteins, mutation, mutated proteins. I think we have to draw the conclusion that there's, and there's plenty of direct evidence for this, that our immune system is doing a very good job of knocking off some of these uh, early, very early cancers, and the vast majority, uh, you know, just never make it through. So, uh, lots of effects: accumulation of mutations, uh, the avoiding of, of immune attack over the very long run. Lots of factors involved, and we haven't even, you know, gone to our individual differences in the way we regulate inflammation and so on. Lots of factors, but it's clearly a, a multi-decade process for most people and tightly linked to, to ageing. That's the biggest risk factor. Uh, age, age and the accumulation of our uh, you know, mutations and everything uh, eventually is, uh, gives rise to the, the clinical syndromes of ageing in all its forms, of which cancer is one of them. It takes a long time to happen. Obviously, Thank it's very... Sorry, go on. Question at the back. Maybe one more question. I'm conscious of the time um, because we've gone over just a little bit. Um, Thank you, Graham and Georgina, for your questions. I think you'll be hanging around for a little while if there are any other questions that anybody wants to ask. Um, but I'll hand it back over to David Meredith now. Thanks, Jimmy. Like, I just really wanted to wrap that up. I found that absolutely fascinating, I think inspiring. Um, yeah, and just knowing that you are both there at the front line, you know, in, in the fight against melanoma, it's fantastic. I really, again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for, for coming here and spending the time with, with us today, Graham and Georgina. And thank you to everybody as well for taking the time out of their days to, to be here as well. Um, hopefully you can still stay around. We're going to have teas and coffees um, outside and to, to mingle and chat. And I believe, Georgina, you've got to dash off, but um, Graham will be around to answer any further questions. Thank you very much. Thank you.